thank you. I'm a member of the Towson Woman's Group in Towson, Maryland. A lot of things have been said about that group. It's been called a nunnery. And that's from people who don't know my story. I was born with three strikes against me. I was left-handed, red-headed, and an only child. And my father was a psychology professor. I have found that during my lifetime, I have had to unlearn every single thing that I was ever taught as a child. When I was sent away to school, I was a very serious student. I was a very serious girl anyway. I was a musician. I was an only child. My mother wanted me to write poetry and play the piano, and my father wanted me to be a sports editor. I could never seem to get it all together. I was also fat and had a bad complexion and was very tall and had an inferiority complex. And when I was sent off to school, I noticed that all the other girls were staying out all night in fraternity houses, creeping in the windows, passing beer back and forth and having a marvelous time and getting drunk. And I never was asked for a single date the whole time I was in school. And I went home to my father and I said, there's something all wrong. All these girls are having a lot of fun and I'm not having any. And he said, don't you worry about that. Those men don't have any respect for those girls. Where have I heard that before? I want you to know that every one of those girls married a millionaire. <laughs> and I married an alcoholic. <laughs> that alcoholic I was married to was a fine man. He was a young lawyer and very idealistic. I didn't know anything about alcoholism. I couldn't understand when a man was married to me how he could fool around with other girls and stay out all night. And I was from North Carolina. And when that happened in North Carolina, you went home to your father. And that is exactly what I did. I had a small baby, and I went home to Chapel Hill, and I settled in. And then a war came along. World War II, I always hasten to add. <laughs> I always tell people how long I've been sober and how old I am. It saves a lot of conjecture on the part of the audience. After it takes four hours to get myself together so I look like this, why well, I feel like I really should tell you the truth. <laughs> I'm 60 years old and I've been sober 22 years. I came back to Chapel Hill and I got in with the Navy. There was a pre-flight school in Chapel Hill and there was an officer's club and I thought heaven had opened its gates. And I began to drink 
and I began to live. I still say that in the beginning, alcohol was a great friend of mine. I forgot that I was heavy, and I forgot that I had a bad complexion, and I forgot that my heart was broken. Of course, when I got on the psychiatrist's couches later, and he said, why did you start drinking? And I said, because my husband was untrue to me. And because I had a small baby to support. And my heart was broken. And he always nodded knowingly. And actually, I started drinking the most wonderful period of my life. I never had so much fun, and I wasn't heartbroken at all. I was just glad I had gotten out of the whole thing before it was too late. <laughs> now, I don't go into one of these long, drawn-out things in my drunk log. You know, you can drive an audience crazy with those things. You know, you can get so wound up that you get up and you say, uh, I was, it was Wednesday. No, I believe it was Tuesday. And I was having a ham sandwich. No, I think it was cheese on rice. That could go on and on and on until your audience is almost wild. I don't tell a smutty story yet. I don't think it's necessary. A girl who's drunk as long as I was and traveled all over the world, you can read between the lines of some of the things that happened to me. And I don't think it's necessary to go into all that. I got too many interesting things I want to tell you. <laughs> I tried all the usual things when I found myself in alcoholism. I tried to be of service to my fellow man. I went to work in a drying in, I mean a, a lying in hospital. That was for unwed mothers. There was only one thing in this world I wasn't, and that was an unwed mother. And you got to feel superior somehow. <laughs> they couldn't understand why I was in the shape I was in. I couldn't understand why they were in the shape they were in. And I never again did anything for my fellow man until I got into Alcoholics Anonymous. I decided I needed romance. And I was 26, 27 years old, and I found a young fellow, 20. And we got married. And we couldn't stand each other. It was one of those marriages where everything rotten that could possibly be said was said. And we cursed each other, and we carried on, and there was physical violence. He was always saying that having been married to a woman like me, that when he finally got rid of me, he was going to go to Florida, to Miami, and become a gigolo. And I used to say, you're going to have to take a lot of instructions before you can become a gigolo. And then he would retort, and how were things back in the Civil War? Three parted. I then began going into drying out places, mental hospitals, electric shock treatments, <clears throat> insulin shock treatments, and all the rest of the things that we go through. I remember after I'd had a lot of electric shock treatments, nobody seemed to know what was the matter with me. I had a father complex that was compounded with a mother fixation or something like that, and they were working on it. And they had knocked my brains literally out of my head. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know what my name was. I was in total confusion. 
and a psychiatrist came and sat by my bed and he said, what comes to your mind? And I said, I don't know why, but for some reason I feel like I'd like a drink. <laughs> As Tony said, a lot of women don't identify with me. After I get through telling my story, sometimes they come up to me and they say, I'm sorry, I just never did any of those things. And I say, maybe you never had the chance. <laughs> and I had the chance. <laughs> I went to New York. Every woman I've ever known who drinks goes to New York sometime over the east and get there. And while I was in New York, I met an Arab. Now, this Arab had the idea that my problem was that the United States wasn't big enough for me. And that if he showed me the world, things would be better. So I married that Arab, and we went to Arabia. And I will tell you something. There is one place an alcoholic has got no business going, and that is Arabia. I guess I thought deep in my heart that if I got to a dry enough place, I would dry out myself. And I had also heard and seen all the pictures and movies about Arabia, cheeks on great white horses, tents, oriental rugs on the floor, dancing girls, and somebody always eating grapes. I went to a radio with this Arab. I've never seen a sheep. I've never seen a tent. I've never seen an oriental rug. God knows I never saw an oriental rug. I never saw a grape. I never saw a horse. All I ever saw was a bunch of camels. Have you ever heard camels? About a hundred camels who are drinking water. Camels have seven stomachs, and they have got indigestion in every single one. <laughs> I thought there was going to be a storm. It was thunder. That's the closest I ever came to glamour in a race. His family took a very dim view of me. And we were transferred to Somaliland, which is on the east coast of Africa. And after I'd been there a little while, a group of young Somali guys, about 25 years old, came to me and said they were very anxious to learn to speak English and to write English and to read English. And since I was the only American in the country at that time, they would like me to be the teacher for them. You know how when you're drunk all the time and wondering why you're on the face of the earth and then something marvelous happens like that and you say to yourself, this is why I was born. I am going to bring light on this continent. I am going to be a great teacher. So I proceeded to teach these guys for two solid years how to speak English. And I never went to class a single time that I wasn't drunk. 
Now, I got a southern accent, and it's twice as bad when I'm drinking. And by the time I got finished with these poor Somali guys, they were all speaking English with a drunken southern accent. <laughs> Someday I really should go back and make amends. When Somaliland became a member of the United Nations in 1960, I was watching television and hoping in my secret heart. I had by that time been sober for years and didn't know any better. I was hoping one of my students would have been sent as delegate to the United Nations. But of course the Somali people have got entirely too much sense to do something like that. Have somebody going up to the United Nations with you all and honey child and all this business. I lived in Africa and how in this world I survived, I don't know, except you're not supposed to look good in Africa. I was on the equator and you're supposed to be bleary eyed. I said that was the sun. You're supposed to shake. I said that was malaria. I took a nap every afternoon, and everybody accepted that because you know only mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the sun. And so I got away with it, and I stayed drunk. I pulled off a bunch of lions. You know how brave we are when we're drinking. A boa constrictor came one night. I had fried chicken on Sunday, even in Somaliland. And I had a chicken coop full of little Italian bantam chickens. And I guarded them because I had fried chicken every Sunday because I was a southern lady. And one night a boa constrictor got wind of it. And he came charging into that backyard and he wrapped himself around my chicken coop. And my houseboy said to me, there's a great big snake out there getting your chicken. And I said, stand aside. <laughs> and I went out there, and I told him, just because I live in Africa doesn't mean I have to put up with crap like this. And he went away. The Arab said, he probably got a whiff of your breath, and he's a Muslim snake. <laughs> I survived all this. I got back to the United States and a lot of awful things started happening. Number one, I lost the Arabs, and Arabs aren't easy to come by. Number two, this child of mine, my only child, I was crazy about this kid. He had red hair, he was very much like me. And I always told myself, as so often alcoholic mothers do, I put him in a fine school, that he was very fortunate, that it was better for him to be in a school, and I traveled all over the world and neglected him terribly. And his father, who was the alcoholic, but who had never been in a drying out place, he'd never had any legal problems, He'd never been arrested, and he was not on record as having a problem. Took me into court, and he got custody of that boy. And a lot of people thought 
this will teach her a lesson. This will bring her around. But you and I know that when something like this happens and you're in the depths of alcoholism, it makes you worse. The only thing it seemed to me that I had that was worthwhile in my life was my son. And I drank worse, and I became terribly ill, and I was barely holding on to a little tiny job that I had. And I had to hang on to it because I had to drink. In every AA story, I feel you should tell how you got into AA. Because it's of the utmost importance what brings an alcoholic to his or her knees. And in my case, I always like to go into it because I think it's quite important, especially for women alcoholics. You know, alcoholics have a perfectly terrible time with clothing. Have you ever thought about it? You know that you have to be careful about this and careful about that and careful about that. You've got to be very careful about the way you dress. Do you know what can happen to an alcoholic if he puts on a pullover sweater? You can get up in that sweater and never get out again as long as you live. People are always making fun of alcoholic women. You go to 12-7, they open the door and they're naked. And they say, isn't that awful? And I say, that poor girl can't breathe. She can't have all this tying this in and tying that in. She's got to be able to relax and breathe. She's barely making it. If she's naked, it shows what good sense she's got. Right? I had a series of closing apparatus things that made it possible for me to exist. You cannot have a lot of elastic around you. You never know when your stomach is going to swell up. Sometimes it swells up on a moment's notice, and you have got to be ready for it. I removed all elastic and used large safety pins, which I could let out at, after time after time, okay? That gave me a sort of bunchy look. I wore up top something that sort of resembled a brazier. I wore a girdle, any resemblance to a girdle, any sign of, of elasticity had long since gone, but it did have some little garters on it that I had attached for safety pins, and I managed with an open down the front dress. These girls that drink cannot have those zippers up the back. It is very dangerous. You think it's dangerous for men. It's just as dangerous for girls. Have the zipper at the back, you can break both arms trying to get back there and get this thing up. So in the last stages of my alcoholism, to protect my own self, I wore a dress that buttoned down the front, okay? I had on this girdle with this little things and a hose, because it was wintertime, a pair of very loose shoes. Sometimes I'd be walking down the street and I'd feel kind of funny and I'd look back my shoes back there because you never know when your feet are going to swell. I also found that it's very important in the mornings. If you're a drinking alcoholic, you have got to be organized in the morning if you're going to try to go to work. So instead of putting this away and that away, you put everything in one place. You start here, take all your clothing down like this, all the way, hose everything, put it on a chair. Then when you get up in the morning, you reach over there, the whole thing's assembled, you just pull it off, get it all up like this, and you haven't got any problems. Because you're so sick, you can't be hunting around for your hose, and your garters, and your this, and your that. If you manage to get those clothes on and get out of that house, you're lucky. Sometimes, when I was really drunk, 
It was kind of a comfort to look over there. It looked like a person. <laughs> well, one night I was very, very drunk. And I smoked a lot when I was drinking. And I went to bed, and I, in the night, I evidently was thrashing around. I know that when I woke up that morning, I had knocked over the ashtray all over everything, and I had run out of booze. And I went, and I looked in the waste paper basket, because I didn't have any cigarettes either. And down in the bottom of the trash can were a few little pieces of cigarettes, but they were wet because a beer bottle had fallen in there, and I got them out and put them on the radiator and dried them out enough so I could light one. It was one of those mornings. And I reached over to this friend of mine, <clears throat> took him off the chair, and put him all up, got myself together, went out and got in the bus. I won't go into details about the bus. It's bad enough just to tell you I had to get on a bus. Alcoholics know how it is. You don't know whether to give them the bill and get the change back or give them the change or what and try to get it in the box. And It's a perfectly dreadful nightmare trying to get on a bus. I got on the bus and I went and sat in the back. And while I was sitting in the back of the bus, I got the dry heat. Now, if there's one thing that is really common is to get the hot dry heat in the back of a public bus and I pretended I was having a coughing spell. And while all this was going on, four high school girls got on that bus. And they sat in the seat just behind the driver. They were the most sickening-looking things I have ever seen. They had on little blue bloomers and little blue jackets and little blue socks and little shoes with little blue shoelaces. And little pencil boxes. And little book bags. It was really repulsive to sit there and look at these children. And they caught sight of me. And they became hysterical. Absolutely hysterical. They went completely to pieces. They tried to behave themselves. And they tried to look away. But then one of them would look back there, and then they would all go into convulsions. And I'm sitting there saying to myself, isn't it a fine thing, the way they use of this country? Treat the older citizens. And then, getting up all the nerve I could muster, I realized that they were looking at my legs. And my legs aren't that funny. I looked down at my legs. And in my hose were cigarette butts. Ashes. Little pieces of paper. Burned out matchsticks. It was the most ungodly looking mess you have ever seen in your life. What are you going to do? Take them out on the bus. Walk with dignity to the nearest exit. You know what? Something snapped right here. I could hear it. Snap. 
Because, uh, you're sitting here on a public bus like a human trap basket. This is not because of your marriages, one, two, and three. This is not because you lived in Africa. This is not because of the wicked judges took your child away. This is not all the rotten bosses you ever had. You are full of booze. You are a drunk. This is what is the matter with you. And three weeks later, I was sober now. Now, this is a horrible thing to happen to anybody. But my point is, when one of my girls says to me that I'm 12 seven, oh, I had the most humiliating experience, I say, wonderful. <laughs> it may save your life. Nobody ever reached me with a lot of kind words and threats and this and that and the other. I had to go through a situation such as that. Now, I believe in AA. I have a fear that for every rotten, stinking thing that ever happened to you while you're drinking, if you'll just stay sober and be ready at all times, something will come around the corner for you. And the longer you stay sober, the more things come around the corner. Now, if you are drunk, it's going to come around the corner, and you're not going to even know it. After being in AA, I'll tell you what I mean. <clears throat> After being in AA, I went to Hutch's department store in Baltimore, and I said, I would like to work in your store. And I didn't tell them I was a big college girl, and I didn't tell them I was a world traveler, and I didn't tell them all this business. I just begged them, let me work in your store. And they showed me how to write a sales check. And I went to work, and they put us all down in the first floor, and the manager went by and assigned all the girls who were going to work for Christmas to a certain department. And he said, send that girl there, send that girl there, send that girl there. He looked at me for a minute, looked real funny, and he said, send that girl a hosiery. <laughs> I said to myself, nobody is ever going to sell hose like I sell hose. Somebody told me once it was the way you ran your hand down in there to show the texture. I outsold everybody in that store that Christmas on hose. Full circle for me. My son, whom I had lost to the court, well, I used to walk around in a small apartment that I had. Have you ever walked around and wondered, why am I staying sober anyway? I had lost my teeth. I don't know. I never did know what happened to him. <laughs> I mean, I just woke up one morning looking there and they're gone. I don't mean false teeth. I mean real ones. They're gone. <laughs> people in AA in the beginning didn't think I was very cheerful. I was. And before the smile, you can't go around smiling at people in AA. You haven't done teeth. I looked pretty bad. I was absolutely broke. I'd lost a child. I'd had three marriages and three divorces. That was that really wonderful, you know? Got a real brilliant future. Been fired from every job I ever had or quit. Professionally, emotionally, and every other way, it looked like I was pretty well finished up. 
And I couldn't understand why in the world am I staying sober. And my sponsor would say, just keep on going to the meeting and read the big book. And I hated chapter five so bad that I tore it out of my book. <laughs> you know what I do now? I got a pigeon. I give him my book. They say the chapter's missing. I said, that's when the chapter that Bill Wilson talks about sex. I don't want you reading it yet. And they go right away and buy one. <laughs> In the midst of all this, and desperation, you know. My son's father went into an alcoholic depression. He never went to AA. And he had a gun. And he went out in the woods near his home. And he shot himself. And my son came home to me. And at that time, I had a roof over my head. I had a little money. I had a job. And I was able to take care of him. It would have been an awful thing if I had been drunk. And for the first time in 25 years, I went in my bedroom and got on my knees to my God and thanked him for my sobriety. And from that day, I have never once wondered why I'm staying sober. After I'd been sober about six years, got a call from Intergroup in Baltimore. And the secretary of the group said, very fancy girls' school. Like you to come down and uh, talk to them on an alcoholism. I said, yeah. He said, yeah, you think you can handle it? I said, I think so. And at this point, I really hadn't developed a very good sense of humor yet. I laughed at all the other drunks, but I didn't think I was all that funny. And I went into this fancy girls' school, and when I went through the front door, there they were. And the little blue bloomers. <laughs> little blue blouses. And so boxy. And for about half an hour, I gave them a very serious talk on the physical aspect of alcoholism. And then I couldn't stand it another minute. And I told them about the incident on the bus. And they broke up. One girl in the back said, my big sister said she saw an old bag on a bus like that, like that. <laughs> Full circle. After that, I realized that no matter how bad, something came to me when I was thinking. The way to get rid of guilt and this terrible feeling you have inside yourself is when you can laugh at your own self. And to that, I owe a debt of gratitude to those girls. In closing, I want to give one more incident that I think is important, of a full circle for me. You know, I was an awful pain when I was drinking. I was an intellectual drunk. There is nothing worse, really, 
especially if you have victims. Now, you know, emotionally, a lot of things happened to me. I figured I was a terrible prospect for marriage. I married an AA. Where else are you going to find a man, I, I found out, who never says, how come you did this and how come you did that and how come you did the other? He, he did the same things himself. He better not say a word to me. I've been married to this guy 21 years, which is twice as long as I was married to the other guys all put together. Full circle. When I was in Africa and being a pain and an intellectual, we had an eclipse of the moon. And I'm sitting on my porch drinking, and I'm listening to the Somali people up on the hill yelling and screeching and carrying on and beating on tin pans. And I said to myself, such ignorance. Probably some of my students among them. And I thought it was pretty disgraceful. Here I was bringing light to the dark continent. And they're acting like that. And I resolved that the next day in English class, I was going to fix them up. And I went into English class dead drunk. And I had a grapefruit in one hand and a lemon in the other. And I was showing up about the moon and the sun and the... Well, you can imagine. And I said, so you see, fellas, you don't have to be afraid of things like eclipses. It's a perfectly normal thing. I've just explained it to you. And you know, one of the guys that I talked English to, and he was the spokesman of the group, stood up and he said to me something that I have remembered to this day and which is the, really the basis of my program. He said, we don't mean to contradict you, but you're wrong. We are Muslims. We believe in God. And we were not crying out in fear. We were crying out in joy. Because we know that God always brings back the light after the darkness, if only you ask him. Thank you so much. so much, Anne. I got more out of it this time than I did the other time. I can't sing the same to it to really bridge between these two. These two people had meant a great deal to me, and I doubt that either one of them really had any idea that either one of them did. Lamar has a brother, and I met his brother first. I was active in general service in the District of Columbia. And Bob was very active in general service. Somehow or another, I got my butt dragged into general service meetings by the time I was about three weeks in AA. And I thought, oh, you know, what am I doing here? 
I, I was in for a long time before I ever learned that H-O-W did not mean hang on to winners. <laughs> but that was the way it works when I met people like Bob and many others who have led the example, including Millie and Earl. And I really am sorry they're not here today. This is where the strength and the power of the program was for me. It's proven to be a, a real help in my whole life. People like Lamar have certainly paved the way for me. Lamar, how are you? Thank you, Sonny. Thank you so much. How would you like to be in my shoes? <laughs> I, I'm Lamar, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi. Uh, my brother did bring me to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I, I'm grateful to that. Uh, I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous uh, uh, 25 or 26 years ago. My brother brought me, and I learned real quick. I wish I was, could be able to stand here and tell you I'm sober that long, but I'm not. But my brother did bring me, and he carried the message to me. And, you know, he carried the message to me in the most unique fashion. He stayed sober. My brother and I weren't speaking, the uh, brother that he's uh, referred to, my brother Bob, he's in California now, and uh, he was uh, between jobs. It seemed he and I were always between jobs. That goes with alcoholism. And he moved in with us, and my wife had to put up with two drunks, and uh, my brother and I would get drinking, and we would have rap sessions. You know, he would rap me, and I'd knock the hell out of him. <laughs> And that's the way our drunk, we always wind up. You better not mess with one of us, but uh, when we got drinking sooner or later, one of us would rap the other one. And uh, I almost killed this brother one night. Uh, I was sitting, uh, it was a, I don't know, uh, Christmas Eve, I believe it was snowing, and uh, I'd thrown him out my place, and uh, we uh, sat and had a couple of drinks, and the same old thing. Next thing I'm sitting on top of him and busting him up in the mouth, and beating his head on the curb a little in between. And uh, my sister the next day had to be patched up. My wife packed both of them. And we didn't speak for a long time. When he saw me after that, he crossed the street. If I saw him, I crossed the street. But out of the corner of my eye, eventually, I saw there was something different about this young man. He was cleaner. He was neater. He was erect. And... I uh, noticed this night. Then I heard for the second time about Alcoholics Anonymous. I was referred to Alcoholics Anonymous in the late 40s in uh, South Texas. I'm a Pennsylvania Dutchman by birth. I'm a Texan by marriage and a rogue and a vagabond due to the use of alcohol. And I was recommended Alcoholics Anonymous, and they were so anonymous in far Texas, I couldn't find them one Sunday when I finally went. And then I heard about Alcoholics Anonymous the second time. I heard my brother was going. My mother went, my wife, and they brought literature home, and they put it around for me, you know, and said how nice y'all were and all that stuff. And I, uh, I was curious. Well, uh, eventually we made up, and uh, my, eventually I became sick and tired of being sick and tired, and my brother started taking me to meetings. But I found out you don't drink, you won't get drunk, and a few little things, and, and I graduated. I stayed sober a year, a year and a half on just that, uh, the fear of uh, dying drunk and 
so forth. But the time comes in every alcoholic's life when he has no mental defense against that first drink. And I was riding down, uh, coming down to Texas one time to visit my wife's people. And uh, we were riding down the road, and uh, Whispering Smith got talking to me. I don't know if you all know him. But he's the guy who used to tell me, you're too young to be an alcoholic. Uh, it'll be different this time. Uh, you learned your lesson. We're riding down Raul Rod 11, you know, and uh, it's really hot in July. And uh, I see these beer signs, and he starts telling me, uh, you ever drink that kind of beer? I said, no, I didn't. Uh, he said, well, he said, looks good. I said, yes, it really does. And... Uh, and we talked. My wife never heard this guy. Never all all the years we lived together. This treatment, my wife and Whispering Smith, she never heard him. And uh, he'd tell me it'd be different. And then I used to wake up in jail, and I said, "I thought you said it was going to be different." He says, "Well, isn't it?" <laughs> but I started drinking, and uh, eventually I, you know, I'm like Brill uh, Brill Cream, I came back, or one of those commercials, I came back. The first time I thought a little dab will do you, but it won't. And I came back, and uh, I came back. I almost died on my last drunk. Now, I'm one of those drunks. I can't stand here and tell you where I took my first drink. I'm a Pennsylvania Dutch boy. We made homebrew behind. We had them crocks behind them big wood cook stoves. We had our old cappers, and we had wine uh, cooking, and we had wine all around. You know, we made our own booze, and my uncle ran a speakeasy. And so I don't remember when I started to drink. And I don't remember where and when and what my last drink was. But I do remember my last drunk. My last drunk, I almost died once again. I was a young man. I'm sober uh, by the grace of God. You have beautiful people. Uh, I'll be sober 24 years at the end of this month if you all stick with me and keep me straight, you know. And uh, and I, I, I never was too much of a shaker. But uh, in the latter stages of my drinking, six bottles of beer, and I was in a blackout where years ago I was one of those six capacity guys, you know, sit there and drink all night. When we drank in Mexico in Boys Town, they put our bottles, the crowd I travel with, aside. And they said, those gringos over there drink all this Carta Blanca beer, now they're starting on tequila. It's going to get hit the fan here in a minute. But they would brag on how much we drank. So that's a, But I was reduced to a six-pack a day, and I was in black odds and come and go. Well, I went on this good drunk, and uh, somehow I got home. And I was in bed. And I shook so bad for two or three days that when I got out of bed, I lived in a row house, and my next-door neighbor couldn't wait to see me. And he says, what's going on over there? I said, what, what? I didn't know what happened. You know, I, thought, I didn't know if somebody was in there, broke in, or robbed me, or I didn't know what was going on. I was just trying to hold on to my life, you know, in the bed. I said, what, what? And he said, man, he says, I hear the bed going all night over at your house, and you give me one of those numbers. And... Uh, <laughs> He said, uh, your wife's out of town, isn't she? <laughs> and I said, yeah. And he said, well, don't forget your friend. <laughs> I said, okay, Tony. And I went to the golf tournament and tried to walk out of drunk. If you ever follow the pros and walk out of drunk, it's not a bad place to do it. Out at Mount Pleasant uh, was a good walking place at that time. Anyway, uh, my brother brought me back to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was almost dead. I don't know if y'all get many drunks like me in your group. Uh, today they, they would pa pack me off uh, and put me somewhere, but in those days they didn't have any place to put you, and uh, they just held your hand and tell you to hang in there. Uh, things are going to get better, you know, and uh, I said, when? And so my brother would bring me to the meetings, and he would stand me in the corner. And I stood in that corner for a couple years. 
And uh, the only shape I had, I, they, they used to miss me because I, I threw up a lot. And if you throw up a lot, you reduce. You, uh, the only shape I had was my Adam's apple. And when you throw up a lot, you get down to them green lumps and wonder where they're coming ha from when you haven't eaten in a week. You get worried. And, and then when the red ones come, you really start worrying. Well, I was standing over the corner, and I always stared at the floor, and Bob would get me at coffee, and they would try to shake hands with me. And I would say, talk to him. He's the alcoholic. Talk to him. And then the word got around. My brother swells up when he drinks. He's a year and a half younger than I am. He's one of those drunks when he drinks, gets a, drinks a lot. He sweats his head and, and his face looks like a bullfrog. His fingers swell up. He can't get his rings on or off. And he's a, uh, one of them big swellers. And they said one time, they said, what the hell's with that fat guy over there? Or that skinny guy over there, me. They said, he's to make sure that fat guy gets here. <laughs> And I didn't have a name for a couple of years in AA. I was only Bob's brother. Bob's brother. And I kept coming back. And then my brother had slipped. And I didn't think you could come to Alcoholics Anonymous unless your sponsor brung you. You know? <laughs> so I used to get mad when my brother had these slips. He had more uh, slips than that uh, were being <laughs> worked in the hosiery, you know, in the slips department. And uh, did you ever go looking for your sponsor in the blood bank? You want to go to the meetings and you're mad because he's on a slip, so you have to go hunting him. So you, his wife calls and you go looking in the blood bank and the guys tell you, get in the back of the line. I said, I'm not here to give blood or uh, sell blood. I said, I'm looking for my sponsor. It was always dark in there and you moved up in the chairs and I was looking for my sponsor. I didn't think I could come without him. But I was so sick I wouldn't ask questions. And uh, after a year or two of this, uh, I found out what was wrong with me. I was a walking nervous breakdown and too dumb to know it and they were too dumb to know it. I couldn't look people in the eye until I was sober three or four years. I couldn't eat in public until I was sober five years. I didn't speak at a meeting or read the prologue until I was sober two and a half years. I didn't laugh like y'all did and like we did this morning until I was sober a long time. I used to stay, I wore a set of teeth out my first years in AA. I said, what the hell are they laughing at? This is a killer disease. This is a killer illness. This is a killer. This is no laughing matter. This is not to be taken. I wore a set out. I just got new ones. And, and uh, I said, what the hell are they laughing about? So if I do a lot of laughing, you know I'm way behind, you know. And uh, finally I read the prologue. But these, guys, these were all drunk-a-log meetings I went to. And they used to say, uh, call on him, he has a good drunk, not me, but those other guys. They liked me. I never spoke, never read the prologue, drank. And, uh, but, uh, they say, oh, call on that guy, he has a good drunk log. You know, now that I'm sober and in my so-called right mind, there aren't any good drunk logs here. I'm not interested in drunk logs. I'm interested in recovery. I'm interested in getting well. And you know what? It's swell getting well. It's swell getting well. And I kept coming to these meetings, and that seems to be something connected with that. I had my oldest pigeon get drunk last year, 19 years, and he forgot where he came from and stopped going to meetings. And when I were talking before the meeting, we've seen them come, we've seen them go. And the ones that go, it has something to do with not going to meetings and practicing these principles in all your affairs. So a guy says to me recently, he said, geez, I see you all over town. You're getting to be an old-timer. I said, no, I'm an old-timer. But he said, must you go to all these meetings? I said, no, that's why I go, son. <laughs> he said, don't you get bored at these meetings? I said, listen here. 
I sure do get bored at these meetings. I sure do. I said, but I want to tell you something bo more boring than that. Puking every morning. I said, man, that gets boring. Hunting your car when you're still lucky enough to have one. That gets boring. And apologizing to that beautiful blue-eyed Texan. I'm like, well, she, tell you the truth, she passes herself off as a Texan. But when I passed through those portals back there, it said the Bienville Room. Well, my wife was born in Bienville, Louisiana. And she moved to a big town in Texas, Palmyra. And uh, that two filling station. Well, I tell you, if you went to the meetings we went two years ago, when the, all the meetings were on one card in Balmer, you got bored at meetings. When you heard Nick three times in one week, and Father Martin, when he got sober, three times in one week, and Lonzo four times in one week, and Bob Jay five times in one week. Damn, if you didn't get bored, because they gave you them drunk logs, like Ann was talking about, blow by blow. I said, hey, he missed that one bank. Uh, uh, this week. He's fired from three federal banks. I said, damn, he didn't miss one bank this week. I was paying attention. And the one guy used to take us on so many trips. We were in Tango Pango and Rango Tango, and I used to get seasick. So there aren't any good drunk logs, and sure you get bored at some of these meetings, and uh, that's part of the medicine. That's why so you appreciate the good meeting, you know? And, uh, but I go to meetings, and, uh, I started going to more meetings, and meetings were progressive with me. I found out I could go without Bob's permission and uh, leadership, and uh, I started going to meetings, and I started going out of town to meetings. I went all the way to Essex, across town, you know, and uh, started going to all these meetings, and uh, I started listening. And all these drunk lodges and all these speakers, every one of them would say, Nick would get up and talk about killing a guy over half a glass of beer, I'd say. See there, I don't belong here. He, I never killed anybody. And my brother, brother would get up. And he, he, he had a good education. Uh, he messed it up. He was a Navy pilot, kid, and just a kid out of high school. And he had some beautiful jobs. And he always got fired, you know. And he, he's the one that always went to the blood bank. I said, see there? I said, I never sold any blood. I can't be an alcoholic. And uh, don't that make sense to you? I didn't sell any blood for two reasons. I didn't have any, and I can't stand the sight of blood, especially mine. And, uh, but I'd say, I'm no alcoholic. And then the next guy would get up and roll and get up and say, well, he was married five times. And I said, see there, I'm on the first wife. I go to these conventions. When Annie comes along, I always say, uh, Sally or Mary, this is my first wife, Annie. They never, they, you know, they never catch on. I'm still with the same wife. But she, I did, uh, she did wise me up recently. She said, you know, she said, I should have wised up to what kind of guy you were when I had to pay for the marriage license. So I spoke at a big shot meeting over around the Washington area several in spring, and it was a big group, and I called her up, and she's real quiet, low-key type, and I said, Annie, if you'll come up here, I want to give you something. So I had a $5 bill in my pocket. I said, my wife informed me that she paid for the marriage license, and I don't remember that, but I'm sure it's true. I said, so here you are, honey. I don't know what a marriage license costs in the 40s. Probably three bucks. Here's a thing to keep the change. But she said, I should have wised up to you. So but I listened to these guys, and another guy said, yeah, I've got the first wife. Another guy said, get up. I've been in jail 
in this state. I said, see there, I've only been in jail overnight. I'm one of those overnighters. I've never been in jail but overnight. Drunk and driving, hit and run. I've been picked up, you know, smoking a prostitute out of Mexico from Reynosa and across the border, you know, overnight in jail for little things like that. And then I got arrested. Although I hit my bottom. I should have hit my bottom way back there when I was arrested for indecent exposure. What a revolting development that was. A high-class drunk like me getting arrested for indecent exposure, peeing in that alley. And, uh, but I said, see that? I never killed that guy. I'm too young to be an alcoholic. They were all old guys in those days. Ann and I were the only two young ones there. <laughs> and I don't know. <laughs> and uh, I said, see, I'm too young. I've never been in jail all those times like those guys. And then some guy get up. I said, I've been. I took tequila cure. If you've been around, you know the Keeley Cure, you've been around here a long time. I took the Keeley Cure, I took this treatment, I took that treatment, I've been to the hot baths, I've been to the high hospitals, I've been to the low state hospitals. I said, see that? I'm no alcoholic. And I wasn't getting well because I couldn't make up my, ni- my mind if I was an alcoholic that drank nuttily or a nut that drank alcoholically, you know? So, but I kept coming and I started reading the literature a little bit. Now, I, I was wiped out. I could not read or reason. I could not even read the prologue. And I wanted to participate so bad. I wanted to be, I want to get up here and tell you all, my name's Lamar and I'm an alcoholic, but I couldn't. My nerves wouldn't allow it. I was still walking out when people were staring at me and I thought they were in restaurants and I walk out and leave Dutchman to do that's a terrible sin, leave food sit. If too many people get on the bus, well, no matter what they look like, I had to get off. I thought like I was going to throw up. I couldn't get a haircut, even sober. It was agony in hell. But I kept coming back. And I, when you all read the prologue that we used to read, the Balmer prologue, and when you all read it, I whipped mine out and I followed along. And I go home and read it and have my own little meeting. And I'd say, I'm Lamar and I'm an alcoholic. I said it so long, I believed it myself. And I'd read that prologue, and all at once, you know the beautiful part about this program is it meets the jackasses and the giraffes at the level of their needs right now. Whether you be from Yale, whether you be from jail, this program will fit any nut. This is a wrench that will fit any nut. (laughs) And you don't have to go to jail, because I read this prologue, and all at once it hit me. You know, if you seek, you'll find. If you knock, it'll be open unto you. I met some guys in AA like Ben B and some of them. Earl Weaver said the Baltimore Orioles won the pennant last year because they had deep depth. Deep depth. I met some people in Alcoholics Anonymous that had deep depth. Ben B had deep depth. And some of those guys that talked the walk and walked the talk. That was the important part. They walked tall. And I started following them and I found out they walked this talk. They walked and worked this program, and I wanted to be like them. I wanted to tell my girl I loved her. I wanted to be a father. I wanted to be a husband. And I kept coming back. And all at once, I read that prologue one night, and it says in that old, we call it the Baltimore prologue. We used to read it at every meeting. I have a resentment. They don't even read it in my group anymore. They don't do those things the way I think they ought to do in my group. And I get mad when I come back. They don't even read the Balmer prologue. And uh, in there it says something like this. Definitions of alcoholics are many and varied. For brevity, we think of an alcoholic as being a person whose life is unmanageable, 
to any degree due to the use of alcohol. I didn't have to be as bad as him or her or this guy. You know, what does that have to do with it? What does that have to do with alcoholism? You've never been in jail, you never, except overnight. What does that have to do with it? Can you guarantee your conduct once you start drinking are the things that I started asking myself? And I was passing myself off as a social drinker. Now, I'm the type of guy that would fall off a stool, uh, wake up and didn't know where he was, have to ask somebody, where am I? And they said, you're in so-and-so diner. I said, skip the small talk, what state? You know? Really. Many a time I had to ask where I was. And I could say, well, that's just part of social drinking. Laying in the gutter. Well, sometimes you just... You're not physically right. You're sick inside, you know, and you can't hold it. And you lay, have to lay down, and, and uh, you're not as well. But unmanageable to any degree due to the use of alcohol. I said, I'm an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. And, then in, and I would go home from the meetings, and my wife was so proud of me. And she said, how was the meeting, Lamar? And I would say, they said this. They did that. They did this. They. Y'all were they all the time. Until one night, that little fat guy in our group, Bob Jay, the most biggest man I ever met, little guy, had a, about a 62-inch waist, one of a sweetheart. And uh, he came up to me after the meeting, and he said, you know, he says, I've been noticing you. He said, you gulped down a couple of cups of coffee, and he said, you smoke a pack of cigarettes at one of these meetings. I was one of them that didn't have those filters on the end. And, and did you ever see a guy come to you and he gulps coffee like he did the booze and, and he lights up and he smokes them and he takes about three drags and he goes, and everybody, I didn't, they were still looking at me after I was sober two years and they gave me a lot of room, you know, they still, I'd smoke, I'd put that one out and light another, never chain smoke, never drink in the morning before 12 o'clock. Might be an alcoholic. So I changed smoke, and he said, you know, I've noticed you. He said, you know, somebody has to pick up after you every week. <laughs> he said, you got an awful mess here every week. And he's trying to smile, and I'm trying to smile. And I left there, and I said, you fat. I said, I'd like to stick my fist up your gut. But I'm smiling all the time. But inside, when Tom Whisper and Smith, I said, I'm going to poke that fat up his gut. <laughs> Next week, who's pouring coffee? Me. And I went home from the meeting. It wasn't long after I went home to the meeting. My wife says, how was the meeting? I said, we of the Canton group. I became a we. Yeah, that's the first word in the first word in the 12 steps, isn't it? We. I became a we. I belong. My dues were paid. My tuition was paid to the greatest experience on this face of the earth as far as I'm concerned, and that's the AA recovery experience, and that's what I'm interested in. It's well getting well. And you've got to learn to go with what you got, even if you can't read the prologue. <laughs> you know? And Charlie Kay used to get up at the end of the meeting. He traveled with Billy Sunday, Amy McPherson, some of those, and he used to say, uh, read the bath, read the bath, read Shakespeare, read the good book, read the big book. And he quote a couple of scriptures, and then Dan, uh, name was Dan McGrew and a few others. <laughs> Mix it up. So I go home, and I tell my brother, he was going to college, and said, bring me that Shakespeare. He brings me Shakespeare. Uh, trying to read the big book. And at first, you know, I didn't have enough money to buy a big book. And you can check these things out of the 
library, you know. Guys tell me today, they said, you know, uh, really tough getting sober today. I said, I'm down to one car, a guy told me. I said, no kidding. You poor soul. I was sober and started having pigeons, and they say, how can I get, what's your phone number? I said, I don't have a phone. They said, what do you mean you don't have a phone? I said, whenever I get the Internal Revenue Service uh, squared away and stay out of, they're trying to put me in jail and paying off those hot checks and uh, this and that, I said, I'm going to get a phone. And I was sober three years and there were four years, and I got a phone. When I was sober five years, I opened a checking account. I don't know why we didn't have any money, but I thought it was the right thing to do. And we didn't have a checking account for that reason. We didn't have any money. And for another reason, I used to write a lot of hot checks in South Texas, and my wife always had to get me out of that. I'm a paper hanger. And uh, so he said, what do you mean? You don't even have a phone? I said, no, I don't have a phone. I said, I'm trying to stay uh, on top of things. And uh, I'm coming back. And uh, so then I finally got a checking account. And I went to work and uh, stayed working. I'm working now. I hate it. But uh, I'm too nervous to steal now that I'm sober. So I have to work. But they used to say the, the welfare, the beginner's meeting will be at the welfare. And I was always looking for gimmicks here. And I said, well, that's the gimmick. I said, they're going to get me down there and make me sign a pledge card where I have to give 10% to the AA or something like that. Some wild. I, oh, I used to get these wild. wild I was always looking for gimmicks here. And uh, after a while, I said, well, whatever they're doing, these guys with the deep depth go, and I'm going. And I went. And they never asked anything. You know, if I gave 10% I make to AA, I'd still have 90%. When I was drinking, most of the time there in those latter stages, I drank up 110% of my wages when I was lucky enough to be employed. Now, that's hard when you drink up 110%. That means you have to spend all you make, you have to steal a little, you have to roll your old lady. Now, my wife was like Tom Epps' wife. She had to sleep with her purse under her pillow. And uh, then I hit a new low. Uh, I was telling a guy at work that never smoked, never dipped snuff. I know he's he's fascinated by me, and and he you know he never did anything. Picked his nose a little one time, but uh, when he hears some of the stuff about me, he's always asking me questions. And he said uh, something about oh, I said yeah, I said I'm a bank robber too. He said are you? I said are you really? I said yes, I am a bank robber, or I was. I said yes, I was a bank robber. He said tell me about it. Ah, it's pretty rough. And he said, tell me about it. I said, well, when you get up and you're broke and you don't have any money and you need some entrance fee and you've got to get yourself together and you want to get a couple beers or anything, and even me and I can even drink that Muscatel wine if I have to. I'm very versatile. A 10-cent draft for a shot of wine, it don't make a difference to me when I'm desperate. And uh, so I said, you, you, you have a, this ace in the hole. It's your kid's piggy bank. And I said, you rob the bank. You go get a knife, and when they're not looking, you can't wait till they get out, and you get that knife up in that slot, and you shake, and you get a couple coins out of there, and you see a couple quarters in there, and that would look nice for a high-bottom drunk like you to walk in with a couple quarters. But damn, you can only get the pennies and nickels. And you have to go in with a handful of small change for your entrance fee and your breakfast, you know? And then he laughed, of course. That's the way it was. And I always made sure that bank was visible when we had company. Now, we moved to Maryland uh, uh, in 1951, 
And I, I thought I was a big shot in South Texas. I was with the company in hospitalization life insurance. I had a briefcase with my name on it. I went and had a license to sell insurance in Texas. Never sold any policy, but I was licensed. And I started out in the morning looking real neat and come home at night with that briefcase and uh, another load on. It was too early to sell policy. I thought I'd have a couple drinks. You know that. Some of you know that routine. Anyway, uh, I start, kept coming back and I started doing some of these things that they told me to do and I became a wee. And uh, I got desperate. But one of the things I started noticing was my little girl that was scared of me. And when we moved back to Maryland, that beautiful little girl from this big shot, I had some good, fairly good job, not good, but they were fair, like I told you. And uh, we were living in one room. And we graduated from one room to an unfurnished apartment with no furniture. You see, my daughter's a home economist by trade, and I hear her talking about French provincial furniture has this type of leg and the early American and Scandinavian. I hear the girls discussing this, you know. Well, we had early A&P. We had orange boxes and apple crates for furniture, and we were eating off a footlocker. And I could, I, you know, and yeah, my brother moved into that environment. It was a step up for him. <laughs> and so when I get too big for my britches, you know, I have to remember those things. Uh, but you know, I look back now, and, and uh, I bought some big cars in my time. Couple of them old Packard, Continental, Lincoln, you know, Cadillac. Bought a couple of big boats, a couple of planes, trips around the world, fur coats, diamond rings, you name it, I bought it. But the strange thing about all that stuff I bought, I never drove any of those cars. I never took those trips abroad. My wife didn't wear those good clothes. You see, there were times when I couldn't even feed those two girls of mine. My relatives had to feed them and bail us out all the time. You see, my bartenders took my vacation. My bartenders had those planes. You know those guys behind the mahogany and say, what'll you have? <laughs> and I said, just give me a draft. But when I said it, I was sending them on my vacation. <laughs> like I heard a guy this morning, wasn't only drunken driving with me, it was drunken walking at the end. <laughs> and you know, I always sent them on my vacation. I never took vacations. I didn't have time God was rough. And that little girl of mine was scared of me. You know, when you have a little girl, when you come home at night and blame your wife, I had my wife so beaten verbally with my alcoholism that she was as nutty as I was. This is a family sickness, and I want you to know this is a family recovery. It's swell getting well, and that little girl of mine, all foot, five foot eleven of her, and that beautiful Texas girl of mine, that old whitehead thing, She's prettier than ever, and we're getting it together. But I would come home and put my fists through the walls, kick the doors in, smash things, and scream at my wife and call her name all night. I'm not talking about an hour or two. I'm talking sometimes till daylight raving with break things. I'm talking about coming home and raising hell if she has something cooked and raising hell if she don't have something cooked. I'm talking about coming home into South Texas and pulling the tablecloth off when she had gravy and everything in there. And you're in your shorts and you worked hard. You worked hard all day. You're over in Mexico and Boys Town for five hours, but you did come home today. And all oh, once she said something I didn't like, and I jerked the tablecloth. We even had a we even had tablecloth news. That's when I was really up there. 
jerk the tablecloth off and all the food, the gravy, the cornbread, and the black-eyed peas, everything on a pile. And then I smashed everything in that kitchen, dishes, one after one. When I had a pile of debris almost as high as the table, a pots and pans, took my shorts off and threw them on top and urinated on the whole shooting match and told her, this will show you who the boss is in this place. And I used to sit in these rooms and thought I wasn't quite that bad yet. I wasn't qualified for step two. And my wife wrote a letter to one of her sisters last winter, and I, she never finished it, but I read it, and then I confessed that I read it. And in that letter, my wife was trying to tell her sister, her baby sister, how sick she was from my illness called alcoholism. She said, Lizzie, Lamar had me convinced that I was his problem. Lamar beat me so hard with his mouth and in his fist, I hit that woman so hard blood squirted. I hit her till she flew in her butt. Now, I'm not proud of that. I've kissed every scar away. And that child was neurotic. Annie was crazy. And I started getting well and I started noticing these things. And I started taking that little girl of mine to get her eyes examined. I'll never forget it. I took her up next to Hausner's on Eastern Avenue, so maybe eating there, bales, and she got her glasses. First good thing I did. When she came out, I caught her and stood her up. She might have been in the first grade. And she looked up there and she said, Daddy, I can see. I can see. I know what it is to be legally blind. That girl knows almost. She was only in first grade. And we walked up and we didn't have a car. But she took me by the hand and put my overcoat pocket. That little girl and I were walking that way ever since. I called her before I left the other night. I said, I want to tell you, Slim, I want to tell you something before I go. If something happens to me and I don't get home, I said, I want to tell you something. I love you more than anything that walks in shoe leather. That girl and I have a love affair. We start getting well. I start going to church with those girls. I started taking my part. I started going to PTA. I started doing things. I started making decisions. When they called me up to school, they said, we want to put your girl in accelerated class. I said, you'll not put her in accelerated class. Her nerves are just adjusting and she'll stay just as she is. When she went to college, I, I told her about sex and the opposite sex. What mother threw her a book. And I'd take her for walks and tell her the facts of life. I became a father. And when she went away to school, I'll tell you, girl, I said, you go and give it your best shot. I said, if you don't like it, you come home. I'll never say anything to you. I said, I'll never say anything to you if you tell me you gave it your best I started doing things. And, I, and that old wife of mine started forgiving me. You know, I haven't cheated on my old lady, and I used to think I was the greatest lover ever to walk the face of this earth. And you know, I haven't cheated on her since I'm sober. You know why? She gave me the best years that she had. I want to so bad sometimes when I look at some of you women. But she gave me the best <laughs> years that she had. I got up here, you know. And, but she gave me the best years of her life, and I can't do it. And I started trying to do things in a moral manner. I started going to church. And I started doing things, and I started reading that big book. I started reading that Shakespeare. I started reading uh, uh, all that stuff. It didn't make sense. And I'd go home and read my prologue, 
I read a little Shakespeare, and I read The Coward Dies Many Deaths of the Brave Man, but once I said, that was me. I died every morning. If I got in a good book and it says, uh, the Apostle Paul said, I die daily. Well, I, I felt at home with him. And, uh, but the begats got me. The begats got me. But I'm still reading them. I wouldn't go to bed without reading that scripture book. And uh, I started doing things, and, and I, I'd close that Shakespeare, and I quit it and push it. And I said, this don't have to make sense. And I got on my knees, and a new voice took over for Whispering Smith. A new voice. Now, you can call it what you will. I'm calling God. I'm calling the Holy Spirit. A new voice came in and said, it don't have to make sense. It don't have to make sense. Do it. Do it. And it wasn't long after that, I got on my knees and waited for a clobbering. And when I went to church and they sang, Just as I am, without one plea, I could have written that book. I wrote it inside of me, that song, Just as I am, God. I can't cut the mustard of life sober. I can't cut it drunk. I can't apply for a job. I'm sober five years, God. I can't walk in and look a man in the eye and hand him my credentials. I can't. Help me. Help me. That night I went following night I went to the Canton group in Alcoholics Anonymous and for the first time I said the Lord's Prayer with my guts down here where I live down here when I said our Father my Father which art in heaven he will provide my daily bread he will comfort me you know I left the obsession and the compulsion for alcohol in that room that night it's never returned in all these years and I felt the touch of a hand on my shoulder and I was on the end and I had to look. I never saw a physical form, but I felt the touch. I told my brother on the way home, I said, maybe I'm cracking up sober. My brother was working on a degree at Loyola University at the time. He was studying psychology. He said, no, I think it was God touching you. And my brother about that time, right after that study, read something by the Menengers. I don't know if it was Carl or John from Kansas. Read, and I heard that doctor from the West Coast say the same thing reasoning. Not only can the alcoholic get well, but he can get weller than well. And my brother and I made a pact that night. God willing, we would be those men that get weller than well. I would go with what I got. My memory has never come back. I used to be able to recite poetry. I read the best books in high school. I, I was active mentally. But I, I was shocked when I realized it. And I called Larry back there two and three times some days. I called Joe M. before he died ten times a week. And until the day he died, I finally had the first three digits down. You know, that's a shocking, revolting thing. When you wake up and you can't remember numbers. You can't remember anything. And God, it scares you. And I still, I, Larry saw me dial a number recently and I did three digits without looking, but looking one time. He said, man, you're getting well. Because I used to have to put the receiver down, and I still do this sometimes. Two. Two. Four. Three. But you learn to cope. You learn to cope. I don't look for my glasses. I put them in. I have, uh, I have to have a system. I have to go to meetings. I have to remember where I came from, you know? And it wasn't long that my relatives started making up with me. I'm going to visit them now. It wasn't long that they tried to hire me. They tried to give me jobs. They tried to do things for me. My mother-in-law told my wife to 
one day she gave her heck they were visiting down home and and uh she said annie you get up and wait on this man she said when you have a husband like this she said you wait on him hand and foot i said don't forget it and she don't <laughs> my father-in-law i was sober 13 years when my father-in-law and i made up and I tell you, if anybody treats my daughter the way I treated his, I, I, it won't take 13 years. The guy won't have 13 years. <laughs> but he used to insult me. When we get together in these family reunions like we're going to do next week, he, this is the way I would show up in the family. Well, here's the senor from Baltimore, and, I'd, and he'd walk away. Year in and year out, something nasty, and he'd walk away. You know, he was in his hospital bed and died, and he came up to see me right before that. He come home and he told his son, I was one of the finest men he had ever met. I'd like to tell you that I don't have the time. But great things started coming my way. I'm working regular. I'm not making a lot of money, but I'm rich. I'm rich. I'm here. I have you, and that's a richness I never thought I'd have. I have the love and the respect of my wife. We're having a love affair. We're having a love affair. Now, I told her the other night, I said, I'm so nervous when Sonny called me and asked me. I said, I wish I'd have told her no. And we were talking about it in bed. We do more talking now in bed than we used to. And uh, I said, I wish I'd have turned her down. I said, so I could relax. I mean, Sonny, that is. <laughs> if I speak it. And uh, I said, because then I could relax and really soak this joy of living. Independence Day. Freedom. Freedom. I'll never forget. Nobody gets here by mistake, but I went to a meeting in Essex one night, and we were cutting up, and there was some queue, and some my brother and some of them were there, and we were drinking coffee, and this couple came in. We didn't know them. We introduced ourselves, gave them a coffee, and we're talking and talking baseball, whatever it was at the time. And pretty soon, the guy rang the gavel, time for the meeting. We went in the other room. This couple sat down, and they were sitting right by me, and uh, the guy got up, and he says, I'm an alcoholic, and he introduced the, the prologue reader and so forth, and and every time something like that happened, she'd give him this, you know, and he'd look at her and she'd look at him. And uh, so it went on and on. Finally, the speaker took up and he got up and he said, his name, I'm an alcoholic. And, and she'd give him another punch in the ribs and he finally got the guts to stand up. He said, no, wait a minute. He said, we seem to be in the wrong place. Isn't this the Freedom Riders? <laughs> That's when they were having that march in Washington many years ago. And you know, no truer words were ever spoken. Freedom riders, joy of living, independence. I have gained independence and freedom through a dependence on you and the God of my understanding. Some call it weakness. Some call it strength. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I'm a Christian by choice today. I go to church when I first started going to church. I, I go to a fundamental church. I'm not going to sing a hymn. I'm not going to have an invitation here. I'm not telling you where to go. But I'll never forget the first time I walked down Eastern Avenue, that church with a Bible in the bar. I said, how do you carry these things? You know, I practiced. I said, I, maybe I better put it in a sack or something. Uh, I said, no, maybe my smoke-con friends will see me with this holy book and ridicule me. And they did. They said, now he's got religion. Now he's crazy. Now he's got religion. You know, and I started going to church, and they helped me because it says, sought through prayer and meditation to prove our conscious contact with God, praying only knowledge for His will for our life and the power to carry that out. And I'm still trying to work that. Not good, but I try to work it. When my brother-in-law in Texas tried to hire me a few years back and said, I got a good job for you. I want you to be one of my managers. 
He says, you got the moxie, you got the stuff. I said, well, maybe I do. That man could never, every year, he couldn't wait to see me. He would take me and get me aside the first thing, and we'd have coffee alone. And he'd say, how are you, when are you sober? You're still sober here. And then he would try to hire me every year. I said, I have to pray about that. I work where he wants me to go. I go where he wants me to go. I don't know his will all the time, but I seek it, and I pray for it. You know, I was programmed to self-destruct. And in that freedom ride, I became reprogrammed to that life that's more abundantly. That life that's more abundant. You see, my father told me before I was old enough to drink, never to come home. My father told me I was one of those people who would die a drunkard's death because my father found me in the gutter. And he didn't know who it was. But he saw this drunk kept falling down and finally laid in the gutter and couldn't get back up. And he went and rolled him over. And he was shocked to find his number three son there. And he carried me home, he said, put me to bed. The next day he told me, hit the road and don't come back. You're no good. You're never going to be any good. He said, don't ever contact me. Don't ever write me. He said, if anybody asks me how many kids I have from here on out, it'll be five instead of six, you're gone. Don't come home. Little did that man know that sooner or later I'd get sober and provide his wife a home for 20 years. I'm the least of six children financially, but my mother lived with us. You know why? Because we don't fight, my wife and daughter and I. You know, when we have meals, my daughter would read from a little devotion book. One of us would read the scripture, one would read the devotion, one would read the prayer every night. And we would join hands and thank God for you. We thank God for his goodness. We thank God for his mercy. And we thank God that we were getting everything we were going to get as a kid from booze. Not in drinking it, but abstaining from it one day at a time became our strength. No longer a stumbling block, but a stepping stone. My mother loved y'all. My mother loved y'all. And she thanked God for you every day. I want to read a poem that a friend of mine used to read, and we'd always cry when he read it. It's me, and I hope it's you. I hope it's you. When Bob died, I came across it in a book, and I cut it out. I read it wherever I go. Was battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it scarcely worth his while to waste much time on the old violin. But he held it up with a smile. What am I bidding, good folks? He cried. Who'll start the bidding for me? A dollar, a dollar, then two, only two, two dollars, and who'll make it three? Going for three? But no, from the room far back, a gray haired man came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening the loosened strings, he played a melody, pure and sweet, as a caroling angel sings. The music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, Now, what am I bid for this old violin? And he held it up with the bow. A thousand dollars. Who'll make it two? Two thousand once. Three thousand twice. And going, and going, cried he. The people cheered, and some of them cried. We do not understand. What changed its worth? Quick came the reply. The touch 
on the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune and battered and scarred with sin is auction cheap to that thoughtless crowd, much like that old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He's going once and going twice. He's going and almost gone. But the master comes and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change it's wrought by the touch of the master's hand. I felt a symphony here as Anne spoke today. I felt a symphony here as I looked into your eyes and saw the room of miracles come alive again in symphony from your heart to my heart. And may you know that true independence that comes from him. May you have that peace that passes all understanding. And may your life be enriched. And as they said, not only can we get well, my prayer is that we become weller and well. Thank you and God bless you.